Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today the Dow Jones was down just over 250 points. We're back below 25 Thousand. I think we were down better than 300 on the lows of the day, but we went out pretty low. The dollar was actually quite strong today. Dollar index had one of its better days of the year, up 0.61. We're back at 89.71. We had gotten back below 89, back with an 88 handle. Gold, gold had a bad day today after having some pretty good days last week. Price of gold down almost 18 bucks now, just below 1330. You know, we got above 1350 last week, but we couldn't hold it. I think we really need to go above 1400 uh, to really clear away this overhead resistance. The only trend that really continued was the bond market uh, continuing to go down. It's pretty much a daily affair. Yields rising off the highs of the day. We're back below 2.9. We got to 2.915 on the 10-year. We closed at 2.893. But I think it is the backup in yields that continues to uh, put downward pressure on gold and some upward pressure on the dollar. Now, in the scheme of things, it's not mattering because the dollar has been falling all year, despite the fact that rates have been rising all year. But the narrative that higher rates is good for the dollar, still permeates the markets. I mean, traders still have not figured out that they've got this one wrong. Likewise, they still haven't figured out that rising inflation is good for gold, not bad for gold. In fact, the catalyst, I think, for today's rally in the dollar and sell-off in gold is the news that came out on inflation on Friday. We got some really bad news that inflation is picking up. We got the data for import prices and export prices, and export prices are up by 0.8%, but import prices, which are clearly more important because we got to pay for our imports, our import prices shot up 1%. They are expecting a gain of uh, 0.6%, so 80% higher than what was expected. Year over year, you're talking about a 3.6% increase in the price of our imports. Now, this is bad for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, if our import prices are rising faster than our export prices, what does that mean about our trade deficit? That means it's going higher because we're not keeping pace, right? What we're selling is not rising as fast as what we're buying. But the other thing is it's just inflation, right? Because, or the cost of living, because we have to pay for these imports. So if imports are 1% more expensive month over month, that means it's cost American more money to buy whatever's imported, which is pretty much, you know, most of what we buy as far as 
products as far as goods are concerned. A lot of the services, you know, they're, they're domestic, but a lot of the service providers need to buy foreign products in order to provide those services. So this is bad news. And in fact, interest rates, I think, went up on that news as well. And I think this is continuing because of this idea that rising rates are supportive of the dollar. And again, the thinking is that rising inflation will put more pressure on the Fed to raise interest rates. And it's the higher interest rates that everybody thinks will benefit the dollar, right? Not the inflation. And it's the higher interest rates that everybody thinks is a problem for gold. But I tell you, the only place that this argument is actually true with respect to currency is the eurozone. Higher inflation in the eurozone is ultimately good for the euro because the reason that the ECB and Mario Draghi is able to get away with this ridiculous monetary policy is by hiding behind the myth that inflation is too low, right? They have a mandate in Europe for inflation to be close to but under 2%. So apparently the highest it can get is 1.99. is too high. But supposedly because it's below 2%, they have to make sure to get it back up to just under 2%. Otherwise, it's going to be some kind of disaster. So this whole thing is nonsense, but that is the cover that the ECB needs to keep uh, doing quantitative easing. But if inflation picks up to 2% or higher in the Eurozone, it's all over. They have got to cut off QE. They can't taper it down slowly. They have to slam on the brakes because the Bundesbank is going to force the ECB to do that. Because once inflation, the way they measure it, is over 2%. And by the way, it's already over 2% in Germany. It's just not over 2% in the entirety of the Eurozone. But once it's there, that's it. All the pressure is on for the ECB to, to, to go cold turkey on the QE and raise rates. And that is what's going to happen. There will be no such pressure on the Fed. The Fed does not have to keep inflation below 2%. It can let it go wherever it wants because it has this dual mandate. And if it thinks that the economy needs higher inflation, then it is able to do it. And of course, there will be no pressure on the Fed to rein in inflation. There will be massive pressure on the ECB to rein in inflation, but there will be no such pressure on the Fed because you know Donald Trump has, has nominated his guy right to run the Fed. He is a Republican, right? He, Powell is not Paul Volcker. But also remember, the reason that Paul Volcker was able to jack up interest rates and cause what was the worst recession, except for the Great Depression, up until our Great Recession, which was maybe slightly worse than the one that we had under Reagan. Uh, But the only reason that he was able to get away with the tough love and jacking up interest rates was because he had the full support of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had the integrity to stand by Volcker when Volcker was doing something that was very politically unpopular. I mean, a lot of people were being hurt by these sky-high interest rates, but Reagan stood behind his Fed chairman. There is no way that Donald Trump would stand behind Paul Volcker if he jacked up interest rates to slay the inflation dragon or prop up the dollar. No way in hell, because Donald Trump is no Ronald Reagan, and Powell is no uh, Paul Volcker. So at the first sign of trouble, the Fed's going to cave. 
I mean, the Fed is only able to continue to posture that everything is okay and it's going to you know, shrink its balance sheet and raise rates because the stock market's going up. Everybody believes the economy is booming. And so, you know, the Fed can, you know, can say what it wants. But if the party comes to an end, there is no way the Fed is going to, you know, push it down even further, right? There's no way the Fed is going to raise rates into a weakening economy. They're not going to raise rates into a crashing stock market. They're not going to shrink the balance sheet, right, when the bubble is deflating and the economy is tanking, right? I mean, the Fed didn't do that uh, for Obama. They didn't do that for Bush. So there's no way uh, Trump is going to allow the Fed to get away with it on his watch. So the idea that higher inflation is going to force the Fed to be more aggressive is nonsense. The reality is higher inflation is just going to erode away the value of the dollar. It's going to be very positive for gold. And there's not a damn thing that the Federal Reserve is going to do about it. In fact, in all likelihood, as the economy goes into stagflation, the Fed is going to pour fuel on the inflationary fire in order to, quote unquote, stimulate the economy. But what the Fed doesn't know yet and what nobody seems to understand is it's not going to work next time. It will be the overdose on stimulus because when the Fed has to go back to QE and cut rates after pretending for so long that it was going to do the opposite, the bottom is going to drop out of the bond market. The bottom is going to drop out of the dollar. It doesn't matter. Even if the Federal Reserve is printing money to buy bonds, bond prices are going to go down anyway. And if it's not treasury bonds, it's going to be every other bond on the planet that is denominated in dollars. The Fed has got no control, even if there is a small bounce. And I bet there will be an initial bounce, a QE4 bounce. If there's a QE4 bounce in bonds, you want to sell that bounce. If there's a QE4 bounce in the stock market, you want to sell into that bounce. Now, in gold, though, there's going to be a ballistic move. QE is not going to bounce. It's going to soar on QE. And you don't want to sell that. You actually want to buy that. But actually, the smarter thing is to buy it before that happens, because a lot of people are going to be too scared to buy it when it's moving up that fast. The same thing with the dollar. The dollar is going to tank when they unleash QE4, and then it's going to keep on falling. So those are not the moves that you want to fade. If anything, those are the moves that you want to anticipate and you want to get out in front of, which is exactly what I've been doing. Now, as everybody can tell just by the sound of my voice, I still haven't been able to shake uh, this uh, this cough that I have. So I'm going to try to keep this podcast a little shorter just so I can rest my voice. And of course, you know, I got to talk all day. I got to talk to clients that call in. I still got people, you know, wanting to close their accounts. I mean, if you could believe it now, even with everything that's going on, right, the people still don't get it. Hey, by the way, my talks now over the weekend both of my talks that I gave at the Cambridge House Conference in Vancouver, the resource conference, are up on my YouTube channel. Give them a listen. These were very timely because when I did the speech, the Dow was at 26,000. And I was pretty much saying we could have a big drop any day. And I was right. We actually had it because I was looking at stuff that was happening that reminded me of 1987. And, and so those are very good speeches. So if this podcast isn't quite long enough, listen to those talks. One is a little over 20 minutes and one is over a half hour. So you got over 50 minutes, close to an hour of my talking. Also, I wanted to point out, too, I mentioned the Real Estate Guys Cruise on my last podcast. Again, if you want to sign up for that, I think we've already had some people do it. It's cruisewithpeter.com, cruisewithpeter.com. And this is in April 
leaving out of Florida. But also, if you don't want to go on the cruise itself, which I highly recommend just for the sheer fun of it. I mean, you'll have a great time. They do have a lot of, you know, I do talk on the cruise, right? And there's other presenters and they go over real estate. And that's when the ship is, you know, sailing. You know, when the ship lands, I mean, there's all kinds of events. You go out and you have fun and they organize all kinds of all kinds of stuff. And then they entertain us at night. You know, by the way, these guys, not only do they have a great sense of humor, but they have a musical band, the Tequila Shooters. And my wife is their female lead singer. And so if you want to, you know, get to experience my wife singing with a band, that's something that happens almost daily on on the cruise. So I really recommend the cruise. I mean, there's more information on the cruise because the, you know, the talks continue during the sea days. And also every night, you know, there's I'm not the only speaker there. There's other speakers. And what happens is they rotate the table. So I stay at one table and every night I eat dinner with a different group of people. So, you know, you'll have a chance to sit down, eat dinner with my wife and myself, and then you'll be able to eat with the other uh, faculty members who are there on on the cruise. So definitely do the cruise if you have a week and you want to do it, right? But if you don't have a week and you live in the Florida area, or even if you don't, there is a one or two day conference prior to the cruise, right? Where I'm going to be talking and other people are going to be talking. So and you don't so if you can't make the cruise or you don't want to buy the entire cruise, you can still sign up for the land portion of the event and not actually join us on the cruise. So you can look into all that too. It's cruisewithpeter.com. I'm not really sure even how many cabins they've got left at this point, but make sure and and, and book yours. But the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I just posted something. I saw this this morning, and I just uh, I just posted it. On, um, on my Facebook page, but I saw the guy interviewed. And this this guy, you know, he won the, the roommate lottery of, of the century, of the millennium, right? This guy drew Mark Zuckerberg as his roommate at Harvard, right? So he lives with Mark Zuckerberg. Guy doesn't really know much about computers, didn't do any of the coding. I'm not really sure what he did. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe he just helped a little bit uh, at, you know, the early stages of the Facebook, right? Uh, and he got out early. I mean, he cashed out, I mean, I think in 08 or 09 with a half a million bucks. I mean, talk about winning the lottery, right? Not just the roommate lottery. Guy does nothing, right? Enrolls in Harvard, has the good fortune of getting Mark Zuckerberg as a roommate, and he's got 500 million bucks. Now, look, I'm not going to begrudge him the fact that he's got 500 million dollars. Hey, I wish, I wish I was roommates with Mark Zuckerberg, right? I don't, you know, I don't care if somebody you know, is lucky and, and makes some money. But what I do care about is when he tries to leverage his windfall to try to tell everybody how, how to run the economy. I mean, this guy is on CNBC today. He's got some new book out. I mean, he should have just spent 20 bucks of his 500 million on how an economy grows and why it crashes. So he'd actually understand something instead of this nonsense that maybe he learned at Harvard. But, you know, he thinks that we have to have this basic income. He thinks everybody in America should get 500 bucks no matter what. And it should be paid for by the rich, by the 1%, because after all, they're not doing anything with their money. They're just, you know, stashing it in the bank, right? This guy thinks that what grows the economy is people spending money. No, that's not what grows the economy. Any idiot can spend money. I mean, this guy's got $500 million, right? He can spend all of it, right? You don't have to be smart to spend money. You have to be smart, although maybe not in this guy's case, but you got to be smart to earn the money. But what drives an economy is production, not consumption. 
Nobody can consume unless something is produced. And it's not that consumption drives production, right? The, the, the cart does not drive the horse, right? If that's the case, why isn't there massive production in Africa? Aren't there plenty of people who are dying to consume in Africa? So why doesn't all that pent-up demand translate into a booming economy? It's because you can't consume anything that isn't produced. And it's not consumption that causes the production. It is the other way around. I mean, anybody who's going to produce something knows that if I can produce something that people want, they're going to buy it. You don't have to create demand. Demand is unlimited. I mean, that is basic economics. There is an unlimited amount of demand. What is limited is the supply. Resources are scarce. And what entrepreneurs do is utilize those scarce resources to produce products, to satisfy the unlimited demands of consumers. And if they do that, they get rich. And so this guy is saying, hey, you know, we need to take money from the rich and give it to the poor and the middle class because they'll spend it and grow the economy. And the rich are just, you know, putting it in the bank. They're not just putting it in the bank. The money the rich don't spend is the money that grows the economy. In fact, the money that everybody doesn't spend, even if middle class people save money, those savings grow the economy. At least they're supposed to. The problem is nobody is saving money. And whatever is being saved is being spent by the government. So that money is interfering with economies growing. Look, this guy didn't earn his money. He, he, he won his money, basically. But he wants to take money from people who are earning it and give it to other people who didn't earn it. You know, I mean, this guy ought to just be grateful for what he has and stop trying to pretend he knows any more than he actually does. Put that money to good use. Invest it, right? Fund businesses, fund entrepreneurs, right? Don't write this ridiculous book advocating a bunch of socialism because he's rich not because of socialism. He's rich because of capitalism. Where did Mark Zuckerberg get his money, right? Well, he got $500,000, right, early on from Peter Thiel. Well, where did Peter Thiel get that money? He earned it, right? He didn't spend it. He had the savings. Look, if nobody had any savings because everybody spent everything, there would have been no money to fund Facebook, and it never would have got anywhere. Every business today owes its existence to somebody's savings. The fact that there was money to fund the business. You know, how long do you think it took Facebook to make a profit? Where did that money come from to fund the business, to pay the employees, to pay the rent? All those years that there was no profit. It came from investors. Where did the investors get the money? They didn't spend it. If they had spent all their money, they wouldn't have it to fuel investments. So that's what we need. So any economic policy that takes money away from savers and gives it to spenders, by definition, will weaken the economy. So exactly what this guy is advocating is the wrong thing to do. But even apart from it being bad economics, it is bad morality. How do you take money from people who earned it and just give it to people who didn't earn it? No strings attached. Now, I know the, you know, the idea behind this, you know, basic income. It's meant to overcome the inherent flaws and, and bad incentives of the welfare state, right? The welfare state is horrible, right? Because what does it do? It punishes people who are working and it rewards people who don't work. It pays you not to work. And in fact, the highest marginal tax rate that anybody has in America is somebody on welfare. Because if they go off welfare and they start to work, 
Not only do they pay the Social Security tax on the income that they earn, even if they don't pay any income tax, they have to pay the Social Security tax, but they lose their welfare benefits. They lose their food stamps. They lose their subsidized housing. They lose their Medicaid. So that, that loss of a benefit is, in fact, a tax, and it prevents a lot of people from working. In fact, I went over this, I think, you know, at one time I was talking about trying to hire a housekeeper in Connecticut. Basically, you got to pay fifty, sixty thousand dollars to a housekeeper to get them to quit being on welfare based on all the money they lose, all the perks they lose by accepting your job. You have to pay them sixty thousand a year in order to get a single mother off of welfare. And of course, it's very hard. Very few people can afford to pay their housekeeper sixty thousand dollars a year. So a lot of people do their own housekeeping and people sit on welfare. Right. Get rid of welfare. These women will be working as housekeepers and more middle class people will have help around the house. But the government is destroying all those incentives. And so the idea uh, behind uh, this basic income is, look, we want to give people money that they don't lose if uh, they get a job. Right. So we want to take away some of the incentives not to work and collect welfare. Well, I got a better idea. Eliminate welfare. Then people have to work. Now, if they can't work, all right, go to a private charity. See, private charities are much better at dispensing money than governments because private charities will actually make sure that the people who are applying for charity actually need it. See, the government doesn't give a damn. And what private charities will do is if there is an able-bodied person who is basically really poor and needs to come to a charity, the charity will help them get back on their feet. The charity will try to get them employed. Government doesn't want to do that. See, when government has a poor person who's unemployed, their goal is to keep them poor and unemployed, to justify their agency's existence so it can get bigger and bigger. And that is a bought voter. The voter who is on the dole for the government now will vote for whoever promises to continue the gravy trade. Right. And if any candidate comes up and threatens welfare, that's his livelihood. Well, that candidate's going to get voted out. So the government perpetuates poverty. The free market eradicates poverty. So the best solution to the moral hazards of the welfare state is to get rid of the welfare state and have the free market. But now these guys want to come up with something they think is not quite as bad, and that's this basic income where you get a certain amount of money whether you work or not. And there are some aspects of the basic income that I like, right? Because, yes, you can get a job and not lose your basic income. But also, I know there are a lot of people, especially young people, who will just take that basic income and that's all they need, right? There are a lot of people in their 20s, their formative years, when they really don't make good decisions. And if someone says, hey, we're going to give you a thousand bucks a month or fifteen hundred bucks a month, they're like, ka-ching, that's all I need. I'm going to live in my parents' basement. I'm going to let my mom do my laundry, do my cooking. And I have plenty of money to buy gas for my car, take girls out on dates. You know, what do I need? A surfboard, some wax. If you live in California, you know, there are a lot of people. I bummed around Europe when I was, you know, young. I forget. Well, I mean, I, I was doing it on the cheap. I think maybe I was spending 20 bucks a day. I can't remember. I mean, I had, most of the time I was sta- I was staying places for free. I was meeting I was meeting meeting girls and, you know, staying with them. I would you know, kill two birds with one stone. I didn't need that much money. I didn't have a basic income. Imagine how 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 long some of these 20-year-olds can backpack around Europe if they can cash their basic income checks. I mean, I think I think there's a huge moral hazard in just telling young people, look, if you don't want to work, don't work. Right? If you just want to, you know, paint and be a poet or an artist, you know, and hang out on the beach all day, yeah, here, collect a bunch of money. There are a lot of downside 
for the this whole basic income thing, right? And, and so I don't want to go from one flawed welfare system to another one, right? And of course, you know, once you, you know, the camel's nose is under the tent on this basic income, once they started at a low level, then what happens? They vote to raise it higher and higher and higher because now you get all these people on the basic income who want more income. And so the voter, the politician comes and says, you're not getting enough money. I'm going to raise the basic income threshold. And then that's the guy who gets the votes. Meanwhile, everybody gets the basic income, right? Whether you're poor or rich. But the problem is it's the rich people that end up paying for it. But then it goes down. They keep defining lower and lower who's rich and who's upper middle class or middle class. And pretty soon, more and more people just want to collect the basic income and fewer and fewer people want to pay it. So this is another academic idea that sounds like it's going to work because it's not quite as bad as the welfare state that we have now. Well, the welfare state that we have now is awful. And this new welfare state potentially could be even worse. I don't know. Maybe it won't be as bad, but it could be even worse. So it's a situation where you got the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. And generally, it's a big risk to go with the devil you don't know and stick with the devil you know. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to keep the devil I know, right? Let's get rid of all the devils. Let's get rid of this idea that people are entitled to steal because that's what welfare is. It is organized theft, right? I got nothing against charity. I am all for charity because charity is about voluntarily giving. It's about people who have earned money and who have the right to decide what to do with that money, using it to help their fellow man. And, you know, first of all, if you're a businessman and you're creating products and employing people, you are already helping your fellow man. I mean, that is the invisible hand, right? I mean, that is basic Adam Smith, right? But even forget about that. People are generous. People will give money, too, in addition to helping people through the invisible hand, uh, and that's the beauty of the free market. The way you get rich is by helping other people solve their problems, right? You, you, no one has to force you to do it. That just happens automatically because you're in, you're in pursuit of your own wealth. And that's how you get wealthy in a free market, by helping other people. Because they have to voluntarily give you their money to buy the goods or services that you're offering for sale. But beyond that, people are charitable by nature. Most Americans, not all Americans, right? But most people, not just Americans, most people want to help. And if somebody is in trouble, they are going to reach out. They are going to do something to help them. I think one of the reasons that a lot of people don't is because they have no money. They're broke. They're taxed to death, right? So they don't have any extra money to help other people because they can barely survive themselves. But if we had a more vibrant economy with less regulation and lower taxes, then more people would have more money to help their fellow, their fellow man. But the whole idea that you can take money from somebody against their will, that is repugnant to anything I believe, it's repugnant to the Constitution, it's repugnant to the Bible, right? The Bible says, thou shalt not steal, right? That is, you know, if you're a religious person, thou shalt not steal. That doesn't say, it doesn't say, thou shalt not steal unless you do it through democracy, unless you elect somebody to steal for you. There's no little asterisk on the Ten Commandments that tells you under what circumstances you're right to steal. Right. If I vote for people, if two people vote to take money away from another person, that is theft. That is organized theft. And so that is not right, even if it's for a noble purpose. Right. Two people can't get together and steal from somebody and just give the money to somebody else. Right. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. A thief that's going to give the money he stole to charity is still a thief. And it's still thievery 
if you, the majority is oppressing the minority. If you're directly taking money from somebody else and using it for the benefit of a third party. Now, taxation is not theft to the extent that it's used for everybody's benefit, right? The general welfare of everybody. So if the government taxes me to pay for a battleship to defend everybody, well, that's okay, right? Because everybody benefits from being safer, right? If the government is going to tax to build an embassy, well, then everybody benefits who's traveling, who would use that embassy, right? There are things that benefit all Americans. Now, whether you choose to travel or not, well, that's up to you, right? Because you can say, well, if I don't travel to, to France, what good is the French embassy? Well, but, you know, if you're going to travel, it's there. We do these things for our citizens. Everybody potentially could benefit. But when you say, I'm going to have welfare where I'm going to tax one person and specifically take that money and give it to another person, right? That's a direct transfer from citizen A to citizen B, right? And if citizen A votes against it, but citizen B now teams up with citizen C and they vote for it, and now you end up having that. I mean, if two people got together and directly stole from a third party, everybody agrees that's illegal. Well, it's no different if they have a politician in the middle and they vote for somebody to steal through taxation. It is still theft. So we got to get away from the from this immorality of the welfare state, whether it's basic income or welfare, that any one American or group of Americans can lay claim to the property of another American just because they need it more. It's not about need. It's about rights. You own what you produce and you don't steal from people who produce more than you. Now, if you want to ask them for money and they want to give it to you, fine. That's voluntary. That's charity. Right. And people will be charitable. But that doesn't give the person who needs the charity the right to steal the money from somebody just because they have it and because they claim they don't need it. Mm-hmm.